Welcome to Process This, a podcast for the sterile processing community. Isham invites you to log on, listen, and learn twice a month. Now it's time to process this with your host, clinical educator, John Wood. Welcome, Isham Nation, to the Process This podcast. This is episode number two. It's great to be here again with you. We have a great lineup for you today. Starting off the show, we'll introduce a new segment called What's On My Mind. You know, this is where I'm going to talk about different issues, topics, or frequently asked questions that really are related to sterile processing. Following that, we're looking at the APIC Journal in the segment Mailbox Mania. And then we have a surprise guest for you today, the Editor-in-Chief of the AORN Guidelines for Perioperative Practice. And we're going to be talking about some new ARN updates. And last... But certainly not least, we're sitting down and talking with Sylvia Garcia Hutchins from the Joint Commission. I promise you, you're going to want to stick around and see what she has to say. So let's not waste any more time and get right into this new segment, What's On My Mind. So I've been thinking lately about the things we're putting into our sets or trays. You know, we put indicators, tip protectors, absorbent towels, all sorts of different items into sterile trays. You know, we're always emphasizing that anything that goes into a tray should have an IFU. You know, it should be validated for sterilization. Well, if an item is reusable, you know, then we're also asking for those cleaning instructions. Well, we've always struggled with this paper issue, like the instrument count sheet, it's generally copy paper that comes from an office supply company, you know, and then we're running it through our printers and the ink or the toner, you know, has chemicals, none of this which is validated for sterilization. Well, I want to talk about something kind of on the same lines. It has to do with our tracking system. Most tracking systems use a barcode that enables you to scan different labels, you know, that are attached to those containers or packages and the system tracks the item for you. So in the assembly area, when folks go to inspect and assemble an instrumentation, most of the time, or at least in the facilities I've worked at or observed, you know, the barcode is attached to that instrument basket. And that that allows folks to scan that, right? It comes up on their computer and it identifies the set, and then they're ready to assemble it. Well, kind of like that paper, a lot of these barcodes are printed on labels that are supplied by these office supply companies, right? No IFUs, no sterilization validation. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't companies out there that do sell validated labels. What I'm saying is what I'm seeing is that um, it's not happening in the facilities I've observed, right? Or uh, that I've been in. And I haven't ever seen any IFUs, especially cleaning instructions for those labels. So how are the labels being cleaned? Can the labels be cleaned? You know, should we be sterilizing these? So that's my question for you. Food for thought for today. Should we be taking a closer look at these barcode labels? Let me know what you think. You can contact me at podcast at isham.org, podcast at iahcsmm.org, and let me know what you think. So that's, that's what's on my mind today.
Now it's time for another edition of Mailbox Mania. This is where I sift through all those journals and publications out there and find important articles that deal with sterile processing so you don't have to. So sit back and let me do the work for you. Today I'm highlighting the June 2019 Supplement to AJIC Journal, Volume 47, Number S. So AJIC, A-J-I-C, is the American Journal of Infection Control. Now, this particular journal is a supplement to the regular journal, and it's jam-packed with literature reviews that deal with sterile processing. So this first literature review is interesting, and the title is Medical Instrument Reprocessing, Current Issues with Cleaning and Cleaning Monitoring. So in this literature review, the complexity of medical devices has increased over the past 10 years, and the outbreak of infection due to contaminated devices have focused attention on the need to adequately clean medical devices in order to ensure the adequacy of disinfection and sterilization. There has been a paradigm shift in reprocessing of medical devices with increased emphasis on a quality management systems approach that requires validated cleaning instructions from manufacturers and ongoing monitoring by reprocessing personnel to ensure adequacy of cleaning. This article reviews the current issues related to medical device reprocessing and summarizes the approaches used for monitoring cleaning efficacy for surgical instruments and flexible endoscopes. So some of the highlights in this uh, lit review are reprocessing of medical devices requires a quality management system. Contained surgical instruments and endoscopes have caused infection transmission. Cleaning of all medical devices is a critical step that should be monitored. Inadequate cleaning can result in failure of sterilization or high-level disinfection. For me, I think one of the interesting things about this article is also in Table 2. So Table 2 gives a breakdown of the different monitoring tests for washer disinfectors. And it gives a side-by-side -side comparison of those uh, tests. So really good information if you're looking uh, through different monitoring tests of washers. You know, that side-by-side -side comparison is very informative. And then in Table 3, you know, there's a list of pros and cons of rapid test methods for monitoring cleaning of medical instruments and endoscopes. So we're talking ATP devices. So it lists the pros and cons of each of those rapid uh, test methods. So a great article. Again, the name is Medical Instrument Reprocessing Current Issues with Cleaning and Cleaning Monitoring. Lots of interesting stuff in this lit review. Um, if you want to learn more, just check out the full article on the AJIC Journal website. The second literature review uh, is titled, What's New in Reprocessing Endoscopes? Are we going to ensure the needs of the patient come first by shifting from disinfection to sterilization? In this abstract, it states that millions of gastrointestinal endoscopes are performed each year in the United States. GI endoscopes become highly contaminated during use, meaning internal channels contained from a 7 to 10 log in microorganisms. Currently, endoscopes like bronchoscopes and GI scopes are classified as semi-critical items because they contact intact mucous membranes and most commonly undergo cleaning followed by high-level disinfection, which may result in as little as a 6 log reduction of microorganisms. Therefore, and not surprisingly, in recent years, there have been multiple reports that have documented that endoscopes, especially duodenoscopes, frequently remain contaminated with bacterial pathogens after proper cleaning and disinfection. 
Multiple outbreaks of multidrug-resistant organisms from contaminated endoscopes have resulted in substantial death and morbidity because endoscopes commonly contact non-intact mucous membranes and sterile tissues such endoscopes should be considered critical items this article proposes that to ensure patient safety um, they follow the spalding scheme and move from high level disinfection to sterilization of reusable endoscopes or use an alternative diagnostic therapeutic method uh, meaning disposable sterile endoscopes so this, this lit review also goes on to talk about the outbreaks associated with endoscopes. Uh, again, it's looking at taking a closer look at that Spalding scheme and talks about GI infections and how they're going unrecognized because of the lack of surveillance that's being conducted. So if you're into endoscope reprocessing and looking to make a change in your practice, you might want to read this full article. And the last review today is looking at using a systematic approach for adopting new technologies in sterile processing departments and operating rooms. Technological advances in healthcare can potentially have a substantial benefit on the efforts to improve patient care. Organizations are often hesitant to consider new devices or technologies, particularly if the new technology is expensive, not addressed in current standards, or affects multiple departments such as sterile processing department, operating room, infection prevention. Organizations considering new technology should create a multidisciplinary risk assessment committee tasked with using a systematic approach to evaluate and make recommendations on new products or technologies. So this article further states that healthcare facilities should not have to wait for standards or guidelines to essentially catch up and acknowledge the new technology. The article suggests that if facilities can do some of the following, enhance safety to the patient or personnel, decrease the risk of infection transmission, increase speed or improvement, decrease the cost of care, then new technology should be considered. And lastly, this article gives the reader a step-by-step -step process for assessing risk when dealing with new technology. So if you're struggling uh, with implementing new technology in your facility, check out this article. All of these articles and more can be found on the AGIC website ajicjournal.org. So you can purchase these lit reviews individually. Um, you can uh, sign up for a subscription, or I suggest just making friends with your infection preventionist. So that's going to do it this week for the segment Mailbox Mania. Tune in next episode for more articles that can affect your practice. So I have a special guest with me today, Amber Wood, the Editor-in-Chief of the AORN Guidelines for Perioperative Practice. Thank you, Amber, for taking the time out of your busy schedule and talking with us today. Sure, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So our listeners have, and I have a few questions for you. Most sterile processing personnel only know to use or only use the AMI standards to guide their practice. Can you tell our listeners why it's important to also incorporate the AORN Guidelines? Sure. So the AMI standards are really great consensus-based documents, and there's a lot of work that goes into those and in coming to consensus from experts. But the AORN guidelines are more focused on evidence-based practice and using research that is critically appraised to come to recommendations. We also have an interdisciplinary group uh, that reviews the guidelines, the guidelines advisory board, and we have representative from Isham, Sue Klasik, who sits on that advisory board. 
So we do have expert input, but it's more about reviewing and critiquing the research. So it provides just a little bit different type of guidance and more research evidence to support practice. Like you said, the AORN guidelines are evidence-based. Can you talk about what that means and why is that important? Sure. So we aim at ARN to follow the Institute of Medicine standards for guidelines. So it's the guideline for guidelines. So we really want to improve the quality of guideline development and make sure that we're being transparent and following all the best practices for guideline development. And a big part of that is making sure you're making recommendations that are based on evidence that you've critically appraised that evidence, meaning we read each article, we give it a score or a grade, and then we summarize and synthesize that evidence before we make a recommendation. And we also consider the benefits and the harms when we're making that determination. And then we rate the strength of our recommendation. So all of this is part of our evidence rating model, and it's, it's the foundation of that is based on research evidence. Sometimes it's difficult to find exactly what we're looking for. What does AORN say to do when there isn't evidence to support a specific practice? Well, this is the gray area, and this is always hard. This is where practice intersects with theory, and and we have to come up with a recommendation. So one thing we do is we assess benefits and harms, and we recommend that for anything you're thinking about implementing in your facility, that you are making a decision based on all of the available evidence, you know, looking at all the different guidelines out there, looking at the research and looking at your facility specific risks and part of your risk assessment and looking what you need to implement at your local facility level. And then sometimes you also need to consider what's going on within your system. We have so many systems these days and you have policies to follow for your healthcare organization and specific products and processes. So we recommend when the evidence isn't strong, you look at the benefits and harms. We try to provide that in the guidelines so you have some foundation, but also use your clinical expertise and judgment. Sterile processing experts have so much knowledge and you bring that to the table, but you also need input and knowledge from infection preventionists and the OR team and the surgeons. So It's important to get that feedback from all of the team. And so we'll often make recommendations to involve an interdisciplinary team when you're making your decisions, do a risk-benefit analysis, look at cost, and all of these local issues. So take all that into effect. And also don't forget to put your patients at the center of what you're doing. What is your patient population? Do you have specific needs within your patient population and community? So another question In the new attire guidelines, it states that long sleeves are only recommended to be worn in the operating room when performing skin antisepsis. Now, does that mean that sterile processing no longer has to wear long sleeves or jackets in our areas? So we found only the one study that looked at wearing long sleeves, and they looked at the contamination of the air. They weren't able to link it to surgical site infection outcomes, but it was the only study that we found about wearing long sleeves in any of the perioperative setting. So we weren't able to make a recommendation on wearing long sleeves in any other situation in semi-restricted, restricted areas other than during the skin prep. So that's what the recommendation says. It says there's no recommendation. And there were two papers we found that talked about the increased cost of long sleeves and the cost of laundering and the cost of using disposable long sleeve jackets. 
So we've put those there in the guideline for people to consider. And so we don't make a recommendation on that. If you at your local facility determine you have a risk, a need to wear long sleeves, I encourage you to look at your outcomes and monitor that and also consider the cost that's going into it because we want to make sure that we are protecting patients and doing the best thing to prevent contamination of the sets as we're putting them together. But we also want to make sure we're being effective and cost effective. And all of this is part of the consideration. I want to caution folks, if it's in your current policy, you need to be following your policy. So if you have a policy that says, uh, that in your assembly, in your prep pack area, you should be wearing long sleeves. You really should be wearing long sleeves according to your policy. And if your policy needs to be changed, then you need to conduct a risk assessment, uh, use your multidisciplinary team, and to change those policies according to you know the risk that you've assessed. Does, does that sound correct? Yeah, I would also just add that if we get a hair in a tray at the point of use at the sterile field, it poses a risk for infection to the patient. So it's not a bad idea to cover the arms with long sleeves while we're putting sets together just to prevent that from happening, prevent, you know, the delays to the patient's care, preventing the extra workload of having to reprocess trays. And especially if this is an issue that you have at your facility, you know, you may want to just go ahead and and keep that practice. In one of the recommendations, it talks about the importance of performing hand hygiene before handling instruments and medical devices for sterilization packaging. Um, It it says that hand hygiene should occur within the hour or uh, wear clean gloves to perform the packing task. Can you talk a little bit more about this recommendation? Yeah, so just to clarify, the recommendation from AORN is to perform hand hygiene before handling the instruments for sterilization packaging. And we discussed a study and our rationale for making that recommendation. And the researchers in that study, they are the ones that actually recommended washing your hands within an hour or wearing gloves to perform these tasks. So we consider the benefits and harms of that. And I think anytime you're thinking about wearing gloves while you're in the clean side of sterile processing, it just brings up a lot of issues of are the instruments clean? You know, are people changing their gloves to wash their hands? It can bring up a bunch of practical issues. So when we interpreted this study, we were concerned about making the recommendation to wear gloves or to do hand hygiene every hour, because I think that would really write some people into a corner of having to to monitor that and keep up with that and might affect workflows. So we were really cautious and just wanted to discuss the study and let people know what they found while also still making a recommendation that we're mindful of hand hygiene. Because when you get contamination or oils on your hands, we we all, all have oils on our hands all the time, and we're touching instruments, we could be potentially compromising sterilization. But this study was actually done in a lab, so it wasn't done in a, in a hospital real-world setting. And they looked at, they took 45 Halstead mosquito forceps, and they monitored them for adenosine triphosphate, ATP, proteins, and they also cultured them and looked for bacteria. And they did this after they had cleaned instruments while they were packaging them. They compared people who had bare hands, who had gloves, nitrile gloves on their hands, who had bare hands that had to wash their hands within an hour, and then people who had washed their hands within two hours and people within four hours. And what they found is that people with bare hands who had not immediately washed their hands 
before handling the instruments had a significant increase of microbial load and protein on the instruments. And of particular note, the gram-negative bacteria were found on the instruments, and gram-negatives produce an endotoxin. So those are more concerning. We absolutely would not want to get those to patients. But they did not look at how sterilization, if, if it impeded sterilization, they didn't follow it through to that next step. So we don't know really if there is bacteria on the instruments, which I'm sure there is. They're not sterile yet. Sure. Um, but how would sterilization affect that? And I think the more concern was with oils from the fingers. And um, we're not really sure how that, how that affects things. So, you know, it's great to have research. It's great to have a study on this. But anytime we only have one study making a recommendation, we have to be really cautious in how we interpret and implement that research study. Great. So here's the message. Wash your hands. <laughs> Always a good idea, John. Always a good idea. Well, that's all the questions I have for you today. Thank you. Uh, I hope we can do this again sometime. Thanks for having me. There you have it, Isham Nation. AORN collaborating with Sterile Processing to answer questions about sterile processing practice. Most of us are familiar with a Joint Commission. We think of it as an agency that surveys our facilities and departments to help ensure patients receive quality and safe care. Well, it may surprise you to know that the Joint Commission accredits and certifies over 22,000 healthcare organizations and programs in the United States. Joint Commission accreditation and certification is recognized nationwide as a symbol of quality that reflects the organization's commitment to meet certain performance standards. Healthcare facilities strive to attain and maintain Joint Commission accreditation as a measure of a quality process. The Joint Commission's mission is to inspire healthcare excellence, and they do that by providing feedback, information, and resources. One area that has received attention in the past years is sterile processing. The complex processes performed in sterile processing, along with the increasing complexity of medical devices, has posed challenges to every sterile processing department. Today we're going to be talking to Sylvia Garcia Hutchins from the Joint Commission. Sylvia is the Director of Infection Prevention and Control in the Division of Healthcare Improvement, in which she is responsible for the oversight of infection prevention and control for the Joint Commission. She has over 30 years of experience in infection control in both hospitals and long-term care settings, as well as eight years of clinical microbiology experience. Sylvia, welcome to the podcast. Let's get started with a few questions. Can you talk a little bit um, of some of the changes that you've seen in CS over the years? I've seen huge changes in CS. So my first experience with sterilization was in 1979 when when I operated a sterilizer that you had to turn all the dials and you had to vent the steam and you had to wait for it to cool down and you crack that door and nowadays it is so automated and someone's already pre-programmed everything it's going to do for you and it's so amazing that we've gotten to that point technology and computers have really changed this process everything used to be written down on paper and now we can track it electronically. And we really are getting to that ultimate point where at some point we will be able to track that individual instrument to the patient. That, that'll be great, won't it? Yeah, it's amazing. In the past years, 
whenever a joint commission inspection comes in, there's there's been a little less emphasis than there is now. Can you kind of explain what those driving forces behind that increased attention in sterile processing is? Sure. The first thing that I'd like to tell you is it's not an inspection. Survey. Survey. And we're really, we're really, that's really an important concept to us that we want to make sure people know that we're not there to inspect them. We are there to look at their processes. It's a survey and it's a, a moving survey, right? It's, it's constantly evolving as we're going through it. We use a totally different methodology than an inspection would. So we see an issue and we start thinking about, oh, could there be a problem in the process there and start pulling that thread? So, you know, unlike an inspector who goes with their checklist and says, I just got to make sure you're doing A, B, and C, we're looking at, are you doing A and are you doing it the safest way possible? So, really important. So, um, so now that I've gotten off track, you <laughs> read no, no, no. That, that is great. Yeah, that, that's what we need to know. Is, you know, those terms are important. We've seen much tighter regulations and standards when it comes to sterile processing. Do you see this trend, this trend continuing? I do. I do see this process continuing. So the Joint Commission started looking at disinfection and sterilization really heavily in 2009. So I've only been there for a year, but I went back and looked at our history. And I looked at how were we scoring it back in 2009, and what are we doing today? And, you know, the, the training of the surveyors and the process has been evolving really since 2009, and we've been able to, to look and see where the issues are. And as we analyze our data, we say, you know what, there seems to be a problem here so we'll mm-hmm. do a little more education, get people a little bit more familiar about it. And so then now they're going out to, you know, another 2,500 organizations and saying, okay, we're looking at this now. So what part of CS gives you the most concern at night? <laughs> oh, gosh. Um, there's two parts. So the first thing I always worry is about our healthcare providers. And, you know, CS people really do put their life on the line because they work mm-hmm. with very sharp instruments and they could be injured. And then, and, and that always worries me. Um, you know, as the mom of four healthcare workers, I'm always thinking about who's going to get hurt. Sure. And, and I've seen some injuries from sharps and things getting left on trays. And it really concerns me that we have the right process to protect them. I think the other thing is these instructions for use. There's no real standardization in how manufacturers are required to do their instructions for use. It has created such a turmoil for the people who need to do this process, this very important process. And you've got, you can literally have thousands of instruments, and it feels like you have thousands of IFUs. The level of responsibility for that person, I just, I feel for them. What message would you like to, them to hear about the Joint Commission? That we are in this together to keep patients safe, to keep them safe, to keep their visitors safe, and to move this to a higher level. You know, we don't want people to just do the minimum. We want them to do best practices. When we survey, we are surveying really to the minimum. And we see people doing phenomenal things, and we hope that people will take the opportunity to do that. And so our surveyors are not just there to survey for things that aren't going well, but also to bring back information about, wow, this organization is doing this great thing. Maybe we should consider that as you know something we want to promote. There are lots of misconceptions about the Joint Commission. How can our listeners learn more about what the Joint Commission really does? Is there resources that we can access? There's tons of resources available. And I think that was the biggest learning for me, being new to the Joint Commission. I've been there a year. Mm -hmm. And so the biggest thing that I found is the Joint Commission has tons of information, and they would love to share it with organizations. (laughs) They just, the organizations sometimes aren't willing to come and get it, or Mm -hmm. we're not sending it out maybe the 
way that they're looking for it, but we have, I do an infection control blog. I've done a free webinar, Dispelling the Mist. They can go online, Google, Joint Commission, and Dispelling the Mist, and they can hear an hour presentation about what the myths are out there about disinfection and sterilization. If they read my blog, they will hear things, what are we trying to work on? You know, we're trying to work on personal protective equipment. We're trying to work on disinfection and sterilization and stage renal disease. Anything that could make a difference that really causes a risk for patients. They don't realize that there's a great resource internally at their own organization. Mm-hmm. All these organizations have accreditation managers who are the source of truth for their institution and who okay. has all that information that they need to do the survey well. It kind of sounds like there's really no excuse for us as CS professionals not to have those resources. You know, they're available and, you know, it's really up to us to go out there and get those resources and reach out into our our facilities to really grasp those resources. And, and when you ask, you know, this happens a lot. Instead of asking the person who has the answer, you ask your friend mm-hmm. because you might be a little embarrassed to say, gee, I don't know this. And maybe I should know this, so I'll ask somebody I know who won't who won't judge. And instead of going to the source of the information, so the Standard Interpretation Group has a website, Frequently Asked Question website, that you can go to. You can write your question, you can ask for it to be answered, and it never goes anywhere except to you. And, I, and I, to be honest, I've used that resource before in the past and asking you a question. And you know what? I did get a response. And so it, it really is a, a, a good resource for folks. Yep. So what advice would you give to any central service department? Follow the standardized process. Make sure that you are following your state law. First and foremost, you are responsible for following the law. If you are a deemed organization, meaning that you get Medicare funds, Mm -hmm. right? follow the rules for Medicare. The easiest way to figure those out from a disinfection and sterilization standpoint is to look at the infection control worksheets. They're available online. You just Google them. And then those manufacturers' IFUs. And this is really where people struggle is those manufacturers' IFUs. Mm-hmm. You can't bite off the whole thing. Nice, organized process towards it. What's your biggest risk instrument? Yeah. If you start there, mm-hmm. you will eventually get to the, to the least risk instrument. And then anything that's new, right? So if you yeah. set up your process from the beginning, if it's new, it's got to go through this, this process. You're going to do really well. Last question. Quite frequently, I get folks using these, this antiquated term, JACO. It's not JACO, it's the Joint Commission. So, so do you get that often? And you know, how, do you re- how does that make you feel when you hear that term? <laughs> yes, yes, the Joint Commission on Accreditation of Hospitals and Organizations, yes. And actually, it's sort of funny because if, when we as employees go in, that actually is what comes out on some of our paychecks. Oh. <laughs> it's that antiquated, right? Oh, and you go, oh, no, it's internal. But I, I think the biggest issue is uh, when I hear that, I think, oh, this is someone who doesn't really understand what mm. we do or the process, and they haven't kept up. And so my first concern is, oh, do they really know what we do, and do they really know the standards when they say Jayco? That, that, that is a problem, isn't it? Yeah. Well, you know what, Silly, thank you very much. Thank you for spending your time and your expertise with us. Thank you for the work that you do with the Joint Commission and the real, the, the passion that you have for still processing. One of my favorite areas. It's always been one of my favorite areas. And I just have to say, people in sterile processing really do a great job. And I know they come to work to do a great job. And I appreciate all the 
hard work they do, and I know sometimes you really feel like you're hitting your head against the wall trying to get it right. That is going to conclude today's podcast. Again, thank you, Sylvia, for sharing with us today. You know, the Joint Commission does so much more than just survey facilities. It provides resources for sterile processing departments such as booster packs, blogs, webinars, and other resources that help us navigate today's challenges in the sterile processing department. To find out more about the Joint Commission and its resources, visit jointcommission.org. Listeners can receive a .5 CE for participating in the podcast today. Simply click on the link in the description, enter the code TJC, the Joint Commission. So enter the code TJC for the episode to receive your certificate. Keep an ear out for the next episode, released on the 1st and 15th of every month. Each episode is on demand. So when you're ready for us, we'll be there for you. Stay classy, Isham Nation, and we'll see you next time.